if you uh, ever visit our house and have occasion to leave, uh, you typically uh, see people on the porch or in the uh, windows or whatever waving goodbye. It's, it's a family tradition. Kristen Runyon sees it regularly. It's kind of a joke. Uh, it's kind of odd to most people, but for us it's meaningful. And It was kind of a tradition my family, uh, the family I grew up in, had, and we've kind of passed it on. Another thing we've done, <clears throat> if someone in our family goes on a trip, uh, the others of us who are staying home, we write little notes and cards, and then we stick them secretly into their luggage. Hi, Alicia. Welcome. <laughs> stick them into our luggage so that later on, when they're in some other city or college dorm or whatever it is, they'll unpack their luggage and they'll find hidden among the underwear or the socks or whatever, they'll find these notes. So now, you know, early on it's kind of a secret because you're not sure, but once the tradition is established, you know, the truth is if you leave, you're looking for those notes once you get there. And it's a reminder you're gone, but you're not forgotten. And somebody at home loves you, is thinking about you, caring about you, and praying for you. Now, let's say I take a trip and I forget my glasses. And I'm assuming my family has written some notes for me, but my eyesight is poor enough I can't read without my glasses well, certainly. And let's say I can't even search through my luggage. So maybe I show up at a motel and, and I ask someone else for help. I know there's notes stowed in my luggage. Would you scrounge around in there, find them, and, and read them for me? Now, hopefully, that person accommodates me, right? They go through the luggage, they find the notes, and they read them to me. I'm encouraged, I'm remembered, I'm not forgotten, etc. But let's just say that the person I happen to corner, let's say that they think it's a scam or I'm after something. I'm asking them to go through my luggage and find notes they don't think are there. Or maybe they're kind of a Grinch. They don't believe in love or encouragement. They don't want to find notes and read them at all. Or maybe they find the notes, but they tell me that they're written in gibberish that cannot be understood. Yes, there are notes. Yes, there's something written on it, but I have no idea what it is. In that case, someone would have gone to the trouble to write out a message for me that was meant for my encouragement, was meant to communicate something helpful to me. But if I can't find it, or if I can't see it, or if I can't read it, I don't get the benefit of the message. I've got to know that it's there. I've got to be able to read it and understand what it means for that message, that intentional note or message or communication someone left for me to actually have value or meaning. And the text we're in this morning is a text in which God leaves us a note. And it's written in really big letters because it's written across the sky. It's written so big, it's meant not to be able to be ignored or lost or forgotten. We're in Genesis 9 again this morning. We'll be in verses 8 through 17. And if you remember, we've been with Noah on this weird sojourn. He's, he built an o, a, a boat. He and his family and the animals got on board. They've survived a year and, a, and change on this floating manure box, basically. They've got off the ark. He's offered some sacrifices. Some things remain the same in the new world. Some things are quite different. Here, God speaks to Noah and his children and to you and I today. Starting at verse 8. God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you 
and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow, or we might say my rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. First things first, uh, what's a covenant? You seven times in this passage... It was first used in Genesis 6.18 when God said He was going to make a covenant with Noah's family that they would be the ones that would survive the flood. And it's the Hebrew barith, and it's used 264 times in the Old Testament. It's an important word, and it's an important concept. If we say it's like a treaty or an agreement, uh, maybe a treaty would, would strike a chord closer to what a covenant really is. If we said it's a contract, it's, it is a contract, but it's probably, from our perspective, it's more than just a contract. You know, in our culture, contracts are easily made and easily broken, and that wouldn't have been true of a covenant. A covenant had more of a solemn uh, thought to it, and it was considered more binding than we would typically assume a contract was today. Uh, Covenants cover just about every area of life. So on one end of the spectrum, a covenant was a will, So a a covenant didn't go into effect until someone died, for instance. So it was a will. Something was discharged after a person's death. But covenants govern basically all kinds of daily aspects for both people and nations. You could have uh, a covenant between a high king and a vassal or a lesser king. And the covenant determined what their relationship was. The vassal king basically declared allegiance to the high king and the high king said... Things like, if someone attacks you, our army will come and protect you, etc. You could have a unilateral covenant, which is what we're looking at this morning, where one person unilaterally on their side says, this is something I will do for you or I will not do against you. I'm making this solemn promise to you that this is the way things are between us. Or you could have a mutual covenant in which people would enter into a covenant, an agreement mutually. So covenants were an important concept, far more serious than we would think of contracts or treaties today easily broken. That was not true of covenants. Excuse me. Also, what about a covenant sign? What's the deal with a covenant sign? Um, Later, not far down the street here in Genesis, when we start reading about Abraham, God makes a covenant with Abraham. and, And the sign of the covenant is this, kind of odd. But animals are cut in half. Do you remember the passage? Carcasses are cut in half. And God walks between the carcasses of the animals and makes the covenant with Abraham. And in fact, sometimes in the Old Testament or in this culture, if you made a covenant, it was said that you cut 
a covenant. And it's because this was a common practice. You know, in a culture that practiced sacrifice, maybe we're thinking, well, it's a sacrifice, but it's really not. Uh, the thought was this. If you break the covenant, may it happen to you just as it happened to these animals. May you suffer the same kind of fate and destruction these animals did. That is, they're destroyed and they're parted. May this happen to you if you break the covenant. So it was serious stuff. To cut a covenant was considered very serious, very much a binding thing, and there was a sign that went along with that. Now, if you bring this up to us today, the closest thing I could think of, and it's in uh, less bloody times, if we enter a marriage covenant, we have a sign of the covenant too, don't we? And What, what are they? They're, they're wedding rings, aren't they? So when a husband and a wife pledge themselves to each other in this marriage covenant, they give each other a sign, <clears throat> excuse me, or a symbol. So when they see that ring on their finger, or when someone else sees the ring on their finger, it communicates they're in a special, exclusive covenant relationship with someone else. It's the same thought. It's a sign that tells you that you're in a special relationship with someone or some other group, but it's a reminder of that covenant relationship. In the text this morning, we've got a covenant and we've got a sign. So the covenant is this, starting verse 9. It's unilateral. God says, I myself establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that's with you. Uh, this also delineates who's included, doesn't it? So remember, Noah and his family are the only ones on the earth. So it's Noah and his descendants, that would include you and I today, and it's, and it's spoken also to all the animal life on the earth. And in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. <coughs> Excuse me, guys, I'm <coughs> really phlegmy this morning. Neither shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So that's the covenant. God says to Noah, to his descendants, I make this solemn promise, I will never again flood the earth to destroy everyone and everything. That's the promise. That's the covenant. The sign of the covenant, verse 12, 13 through 15, this is the sign of the covenant. I set my bow in the cloud. It'll come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. I'll remember my covenant. This is the same Hebrew word we talked about in Genesis 8, 1. This does not mean God can forget. This means God can't forget, that there's no way he'll forget that he's going to keep his promise when the rainbow's in the sky. He's going to keep that covenant promise to every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So God makes this unilateral covenant never to destroy the earth in a flood again and he gives a sign, a symbol, a message, a reminder of the covenant, the rainbow in the sky. So when you and I see a rainbow in the sky today, God means for us to remember this covenant promise he made in Noah's day to Noah and his descendants never to flood the earth again. And he gives us this sign. He writes this symbol, this covenant sign in the sky so we can't forget and we certainly can't miss it, glasses on or off. Now, simply, that's what the text says and, and that's sort of what it means. God makes a covenant. Here's the sign. Here's the reminder. I confess, as I was preparing for this, I was asking myself this question. Why am I so unimpressed with this promise uh, and its sign? And I don't know if you feel the same way or not. I read this and I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's nice, you know. 
good stuff. And preaches well, I suppose. But at the end of the day, I'm still thinking, I'm not sure uh, why this is significant to me today, why this is significant to us today. There's a couple reasons for that, and let's start with uh, this one. Related to the covenant God made not to flood the earth again. If I don't think God is going to do something to harm me, and He says He won't do anything to harm me, how much value does that have? If you're driving a car and you promise not to hurt me with the car, and I know you, and I know you're a good driver, and you, and you say that, well, it's like, that's fine, but I didn't think you would anyway. If we have that mentality, then a promise by God not to destroy the earth with a flood, it doesn't have much value. But I think it's because we've lost perspective. We've lost two perspectives. First is Noah's. Put yourself in Noah's shoes. You remember he lived in the world before the flood. He knew what the world looked like. He knew neighbors and distant relatives. And he had probably farm animals and on and on. You get the picture. He knew what the world was like before the flood. And then he and his family and pairs of animals from around the world get on the, the boat. And a year later they get off and <clears throat> everything's gone. Remember, all the animals, they're gone except what's on the boat. All the people that were on the earth, they're all gone. They don't exist anymore. They were all destroyed. So Noah gets off the ark, and you know what? He knows something. He knows God's holy, and God will judge sin in death on the earth. He has no doubt about this. And also the passage just before the one we read here, God says some things are the same after the flood, and one of the things is that's the same is we're evil. Man's evil from birth. And every intent of our heart is evil from the time we're born on. God's under no illusion. Man after the flood is the same as man before the flood. And you know what? I think Noah knows that. And Noah received grace from God and favor, and Noah believed, all of which is great. But the passage immediately after this, we see Noah, Noah's drunk. <laughs> Noah drinks to excess. In other words, I think Noah's thinking something like this. <clears throat> God's holy, and he destroyed everyone on the earth before me and my family. We're the only ones left. And you know what? There may not be much difference between us and the people that were killed in the flood. So if I'm Noah or those family members and I get off the boat, I'm scratching my head thinking this. I'm not much different than they were. God destroyed them in a flood over all the earth. I wonder if He'll do it again in my day. Or maybe I know my kids, and I know my kids are kind of like me and they're aunts and uncles and relatives that perished in the flood, uh, maybe God will flood the earth in their day. Maybe my children will be wiped out in destruction. Or maybe my children's children will face the same thing that we've just seen God do in the earth, destroy the earth. So if you're Noah getting off the ark, knowing what God just did, and knowing the propensity of your own heart, and knowing your children... This promise from God not to do the same thing again carries a value it doesn't typically for us today. Another side of this is, remember that this story of the flood is reiterated through the Gospels and the Epistles as a reminder that God is holy and God judges. And we've talked about this before, but we tend to think God's a nice guy like us who won't judge. But the story of the flood is the reminder God gave to the world and it's meant to carry 
enforced today that it's a reminder that God is holy and God will and God must judge sin. So for Noah, having just seen that judgment of God on the earth, this promise had meaning and value. And I think the degree to which we fail to recognize that God's holy, that God will judge sin, that God must judge sin, I think it's to that degree that we fail to realize the value of this unilateral covenant God made with Noah and his descendants and the animals on the earth. It's a failure to appreciate God's holiness, His willingness, and the necessity of God judging sin. Related to the sign of the covenant, uh, why doesn't my mind automatically jump to remembering this covenant God made with me and with you and with Noah, all his heirs? Why doesn't my mind immediately go to that when I see a rainbow? I think there's probably a couple reasons. One, and this is maybe minimal, but um, we attach value or meaning to symbols all the time. So, you know, if you think of a rainbow today, I mean, I could think of a few easily. I'm Irish. I'm thinking I'm looking for the pot of gold, you know, and that little leprechaun at the end of that rainbow. So if I can see the end, I'm rich. If I can just get there, you know. Or... We're in Kansas, you know, we're, we're with Dorothy Gale. We're looking to go somewhere over the rainbow where bluebirds live, you know, and life is good. Or if you're a Muppet fan, like people at my house are, do you know this? We're looking for the rainbow connection of lovers and dreamers and me. Isn't that nice? So on one hand, you get uh, the substitution of meaning, don't you? One thing kind of pushes out another. We see a rainbow today. Maybe we think of a covenant. Maybe we don't. Maybe we think of leprechauns and golds and, and Kermit the Frog and others. I don't know. But maybe we don't assign the value to it that God meant it to have because we've assigned other values or other symbols, other meanings. Another reason, and maybe, maybe the more common one, I think in my mind when I think about this, I don't care if you've seen Ben Stein's movie Expelled. I don't care if you support, ID, whatever. I am absolutely convinced that Christians who read Genesis 1 to 11 and believe it's literally true, that our minds are still warped by the culture around us and that we still have these senses that the world we see is, is ruled by Mother Nature and the laws of physics, as, as it were. And that somehow, you know, mindless uh, causes and and law somehow conspired to produce the beauty that we see in the world around us so that we see a rainbow maybe in the sky and we think of what a glorious thing Mother Nature has put on display for us. You know, so if you are educated today in anything related to science, you know what a rainbow is and you know how it's formed. You know that light passes through the the moisture vapor in the sky and it's refracted into its component wavelengths and colors, and you know that's what you're seeing. And physics level and science level, that's great. But we don't know why it's there. We know what it is, we know how it's made, but we don't necessarily know why it's there. We understand its composition, we just don't understand its meaning. The meaning of the symbol has been lost. And think about this. This comes up in spades, but we've been in Genesis, and I think of this over and over and over again. Creation is meant to display God. When God created the earth, the heavens, and the universe, 
It's no different than Bethany and I being in the Chicago Art Institute. We go up and we see a painting on the wall. We look for our Bougereau in the Art Institute, and there it is. And I know Bougereau did that painting because if you've seen his work, it's, got a, it's neoclassical, it's got a certain look, it's exquisite, it's lovely. And if you've seen one, you can pick his work out and you know I'm looking at a Bougereau. Well, when God created the heavens and the earth, His thumbprint, His signature is all over it. We deny that, though, typically. But Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. That's true. It's true today. It was true when David wrote it. Or Romans 1.20, since creation is invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. The heavens really do declare the glory of God, and in this case, the rainbow really does declare a promise God made to Noah and his descendants on the earth. The rainbow declares the promise of God. The skies proclaim his glory. The rainbow proclaims his promise. God wrote this note. He made it so big you can't miss it. But I, I tend to think we, not just non-Christians, but we as Christians are spiritually illiterate so that we see the writing in the sky, but we're still not sure what it means. Let me read you a poem by Angela Morgan. I don't know what else she wrote, but our family loves this poem. And when she looked at nature, she saw God's handwork in all of it. This is called God the Artist. God, when you thought of a pine tree, how did you think of a star? How did you dream of the Milky Way to guide us from afar? How did you think of a clean brown pool where flecks of shadows are? God, when you thought of a cobweb, how did you think of dew? How did you know a spider's house had shingles bright and new? How did you know the human folk would love them like they do? God, when you patterned a bird song, Flung on a silver string, how did you know the ecstasy that crystal call would bring? How did you think of a bubbling throat and a darling speckled wing? God, when you chiseled a raindrop, how did you think of a stem bearing a lovely satin leaf to hold the tiny gem? How did you know a million drops would deck the morning's hem? Why did you mate the moonlit night with the honeysuckle vines? How did you know Madeira Bloom distilled ecstatic wines? How did you weave the velvet disc where tangled perfumes are? God, when you thought of a pine tree, how did you think of a star? The poet, Angela Morgan, understood that God declares himself. He reminds us of his presence and his character through the very fabric of the nature around us. Creation speaks of God's glory and the rainbow speaks of God's promise. I'm afraid most of us, probably most of the time, are spiritually illiterate. God's written a note. He's given us a message in the sky, a reminder of a, of a covenant promise to us. We fail to grasp its significance or its importance. I want to wind down by just mentioning there are other covenants and signs in the Scripture. You know, go a little further down. God does make a covenant with Abraham. He gives circumcision, ouch, a sign of that covenant, you know. A little different, rainbow's painless, it's lovely, the circumcision's a sign. Or you think of Moses and the covenant God made with Israel on Sinai, and the sign was the blood of the bull that was slain and sprinkled on the nation there at the mountain. 
But this morning on a Sunday when we're going to have the Lord's Supper a little later in the worship time, it's good to remember that while we still live, we live today as descendants of Noah under the covenant we just read about. The covenant God gave to Noah is our covenant too. We still live under this covenant today, still live under the sign of that covenant, the rainbow. Better than that, we live under what Jesus called the new covenant. New versus old. The old would have been the Mosaic covenant given on Sinai to the nation of Israel. But the new covenant Jesus instituted on that night of the Last Supper, he said would be in his own blood. And think of this. Uh, God, for this covenant related to the rainbow, writes on the sky to remind people of this promise. But you know, the new covenant, it's written also, but it's not written in nature. I thought this was interesting. Where is it written, this new covenant? Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, God spoke to Jeremiah about a covenant he would make with Israel in the future. And this, the benefit of the covenant is what you and I live under today. I believe Israel in the future will also benefit ethnically and nationally under the same covenant. But we live under this covenant today that Jeremiah spoke of. God speaking through Jeremiah said, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will pardon their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Uh, the covenant God made to know it's written in the sky. It's written outside of knowing nature. <clears throat> the covenant everyone lives under who's trusted Christ as their Savior is a law that's been written on your heart and in your mind, much more personal. The book of Hebrews calls this new covenant Jesus instituted, better covenant, better promises, perfect sacrifice. And the sign of the covenant that Jesus left with us, which we'll take later, is the bread and the wine. When we see those symbols, we're meant to think of that new covenant Jesus instituted in his blood. And what's the promise there of the new covenant? It's a reminder that our sins and lawless deeds are covered, that when Jesus died on the cross, if you will, he suffered the flood of God's judgment for sin so that we today, we're like Noah coming out of the ark. We don't fear the punishment of God because we know it's been fully discharged in the flood of judgment Christ suffered for us on the cross. So that when we see the sign of the new covenant, we're reminded we will never stand in judgment for those sins. Noah passed through the flood. The ancient world perished in that judgment, but Noah didn't. Noah and his family passed through Unharmed, you and I pass through the flood of God's judgment today because it was fully discharged in Jesus Christ on the cross. So when you see a rainbow, remember the promise that you and I live under today. And when we take the Lord's Supper today or tomorrow or next week or next year, remember that thankfully we live not just under the covenant God gave Noah, we live under the new covenant God gave us through Jesus Christ at the price of his blood on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by the force uh, that Noah and his family experienced when they came out of the ark and all other life was gone. Lord, to be on the ark was to be safe. Uh, to be out of the ark was to fall under the weight of your judgment. Lord, to be in Christ today is to be safe. Saved from our sins, saved from the penalty due our sins. Lord, to be without Christ is, in Paul's words, to be without hope and without God.
Father, thank you for the new covenant you've instituted on our behalf, all that you're doing, all at your cost, to benefit us. And when we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, or when we see the rainbow in the sky, help us to remember your covenant-keeping ways and the promises you've made to us that, Lord, not only will you not flood the earth again, but that we have passed safely out of judgment into life, all because of your Son. Father, I pray that you help us to live thankful, joyful, exuberant lives, knowing who we belong to and seeing the reminders of your goodness and your faithfulness around us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.